a series talking about um, communication in different ways, communicating the message of Jesus with the world, uh, telling his story to other people, telling our story and to other people and what Jesus has done in our life. It was, I was watching a YouTube channel uh, this past week. I watch a lot of YouTube, um, probably more than I really should, but it's such a great resource. Um, you know, not everything on there is great, but there's a lot of good stuff. Um, and I was watching this video and it popped up, it came into my feed, and it was, it was about a, how a pastor was supposed to conduct themselves. And uh, frankly, uh, to be frank, I probably would have normally just skipped that one um, because I'm like, oh great, another person who's never pastored telling a pastor how to pastor. But anyway, I couldn't skip it because I was in the shower and I had my, uh, my phone set up outside the shower and so I couldn't skip the video. Everybody does that, right? You watch YouTube in the shower? Maybe not. Maybe I'm just weird. Um, but to be fair, um, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I had to admit that what I did here, by the time I got through it, I was actually kind of encouraged by it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, I kind of like that. That's pretty good. But it prompted me to go read the passage that this guy was communicating from, um, and it was 1 Timothy, and that's where we're going to be today as we talk about uh, you know, sharing his story, communicating with the world. Um, and I, if you guys have seen that title that we, we've got this morning, it sounds a little like clickbait, but many of the books in the New Testament are letters that were written to different people and different churches. And 1 Timothy is no different. Uh, it's, it's a letter that Paul writes to Timothy, kind of like Timothy's mentor. And it's what's referred to often as one of the pastoral epistles. Like there's the Gospels that talk about the life of Jesus, and then there's a few pastoral epistles where Timothy, or sorry, Paul is writing instruction uh, to Timothy. He's a younger pastor, and Paul invests a lot in Timothy. And in chapter 4, he's giving him some instruction on being a good minister of Jesus Christ and how to do that. And if, like I said, if, you, if you've noticed or caught the title for the sermon today, um, I, don't get too excited. It's probably not what you think. Uh, but as we go through these things and touch on different things as we go through this passage in Timothy, um, some will find them encouraging. Some may some might be a little disappointed. Someone may even get a little angry. But, of course, I have a calling to fulfill. And there's things that I need to talk about at times and teach people. And sometimes if you get angry, if you're that latter person, uh, remember, anger is a masking emotion. And there's something underneath that anger that's causing it. And it very well may be conviction. I know sometimes when I listen to things that make me angry, when I have time to kind of settle in it and think about it, I'm like, eh, that may be right. But let's read. We're going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, to open up. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Now the Spirit clearly says that in the last time some will depart from the faith and pay attention to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and not to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you remind the brothers of these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished by the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have followed closely. 
but refuse profane and foolish myths. Instead, exercise in the ways of godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable in all things, holding promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with a laying on of hands by the elders. Meditate on these things. Give yourself completely to them, that your progress may be known to everyone. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing so, or in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your grace, your mercy that you so uh, freely extend to us. And as we look to your word, Father, I pray that we would hear what you have for us to learn from it. And not only that we'd learn from it, but it would, it would shape who we are. We would become more of who you want us to be each day as we walk closer with you. And that we would carry that with us everywhere we go. And we would be people who go into the world and speak reason and peace into difficult situations. And we're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now this chapter and the next one, um, are, they're a bit challenging to speak from as a pastor, especially the next one when, when Paul starts talking about, you know, the pastor being worthy of being paid well and things like that. And it can come off almost as if uh, someone like myself speaking on these things is trying to set himself at some kind of an advantage. And that's really not what this is about. It's just about teaching things that I'm supposed to teach. But most of the time, um, actually, I think every time I've heard this passage taught, it's been from the place of this is how the pastor should conduct himself. Um, there's certain things a pastor should do. There's certain things, ways that he should act. And that is true for sure, no doubt. But the why of a pastor doing those things, is it's kind of missed, often missed, I'd say. Um, and if we're really frank about it, something I've seen, maybe you've seen well in the world, is Christians often struggle with the why. We often know what we should do. We often know, you know how people should live. But sometimes we struggle with the why they should do that. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of Christians are able to tell someone a good way to live, the right thing to do, but it's sometimes it's more difficult to explain the why of that, especially with some of the social issues and things that we see um, that would be counter to Christian doctrine. Um, why living one way is better than another in a pragmatic sense, and sometimes that's clear, and sometimes it's more of a struggle. Sometimes it's not quite so clear. But why does Paul tell Timothy the things he does in this chapter? And I think you know, now's a good time to explore that. Here's the why 
of what Paul is teaching Timothy in his pastor. And, and he's telling this, you know, obviously two pastors throughout, you know, ever since he's written this. But Paul is teaching Timothy. He says, the reason you should do and be certain things and act in certain ways is because as a good minister of Jesus, his life is an object lesson for the people he teaches as he teaches people about the things he's doing. So that's interesting to think about. The pastor's life is an object lesson for other people. And that, that's a challenging thought. Obviously, it would be. A pastor should be trying to be his own object lesson as he teaches what he does. We've all heard the saying, you know, practice what you preach. That's what that is. His conversation, remember that word conversation, if we used to, it meant more than just talking. It meant your whole way of life, your conversation. The way he talks, the things he talks about. Uh, the way he lives, uh, his marriage, his family, all those things should supplement what he teaches. Um, his life is supposed to be something that helps people learn how to live life as a believer. And that's a big responsibility. That's, that's something that's very challenging. And the things Paul teaches Timothy, Timothy as a shepherd is supposed to live in front of his people and he's supposed to also teach those things to his people, and his life is an object lesson of those things. And I'm sure you're wondering when I'm going to get to that title, Communicating His Story. Let's talk about COVID, charlatans, conspiracy theories, and the coming into the world. Um, those are some gripping words in our day, no doubt. And we're going to talk um, about those things a bit and work through those in such a way as how we communicate those kinds of things, how we work through those kinds of things as believers. So let's talk about some things. And Paul opens with this in the, in the first couple of verses there. He says, Now the Spirit clearly says that in the last time some will depart from the faith and pay attention to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And we'll come back to that verse again in a minute. But to start with that, it's very easy to catch those very gripping words, doctrines of devils, um, seducing spirits. Those are very, um, yeah, the words that really grab your attention, very gripping words. But notice that Paul opens with something before that. He says, now the Spirit clearly says that in the last times, some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. In regards to the last times, we'll start there. We've been living there for a very long time. Okay, we've been living in the last times for a long time. The end times began when Jesus ascended back to heaven. So yes, we are definitely living in the end times. I know that's a popular thing. People talk about that a lot. And we're living in the end time. Now, are we living in the end of the end times? Well, that's a different question. You know, when will Jesus come back? You know, I don't know, and neither does anyone else. But in regards to that, it would be wise to live like it's going to be Tuesday. It would. You know, every, every generation of Christians thinks, you know, this is it. And maybe for us, this is it. But the fact is, is we don't know for sure. We don't really know. So what we do is we live our lives in such a way that we believe that to be true. And another opening, Paul uh, point Paul says there is that some will depart from the faith. 
Some will depart from the faith. And people have to be part of the faith before they can depart from it. And they've got to be part of it before they can leave it. And there's sometimes a tendency for believers to misuse Scripture and applying it to unbelievers in ways that we should be reflecting upon ourselves and applying it to ourselves. When Paul says, in the last times, people will depart from the faith and pay attention to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy and having their conscience seared with a hot iron. He's talking about church people. He's talking about the, the people that Timothy is teaching. He's talking about the people that the pastor is supposed to be using his life as an object lesson of what he teaches. Okay? He's talking about people like us. And we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't forget that. And then in verse 6, he says, If you remind the brothers of these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to be. So that's what I'm doing. And then in verse 7, Paul says, But refuse profane and foolish myths. Instead, exercise in the ways of godliness. One of the things I noticed when I read this, is that I've always heard this taught as this is for the pastor. The pastor should refuse profane and foolish myths and instead exercise in the ways of godliness. And that's very much true. Very true. Wouldn't deny that for a second. And he should, but we don't want to forget the why of that. The why is so that he can be a good minister of Jesus Christ and he can serve as an example of what he teaches, and he's supposed to be teaching people that as well. Refuse, profane, and foolish miss. For a church leader, your life represents what you teach. As the old saying goes, practice what you preach. And when you look at the previous chapter, where Paul writes the qualifications of church leaders, it makes a lot of sense. It's like, okay, this, these things need to be in line. He needs to have his household in line. You know, he needs to be able to take care of himself and his family before he can take care of a church. And so those things make a lot of sense because his life is supposed to be an example. It's part of what he teaches. It's an object lesson of what he teaches. Now, we all understand that doesn't mean perfection. I want to make that very clear for my, my own benefit. But it's, it's, I should be striving to be an example of someone who strives for what God wants us to be. And that's not a small thing. That's a lot of responsibility. And I think about that, and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. But let's dig into this title a little more, Conspiracies, COVID, and the Coming into the World. Um, it's very easy for believers, and I've seen so much of this, to become a bit overwhelmed with those things, a bit caught up in those things, a, a, a bit swept away by them. Especially ones who are less mature. They tend to be caught up in, in, in catchphrases and words and things like that. And Sometimes when you tell someone, well, you, you, know, you need to mature a bit, it, it can be kind of offensive. But if that's the case, if that being told that you need to mature is offensive, that's probably the case. And when I talk about spiritual maturity, it has nothing to do with physical age. Um, it has nothing to do really either with how long someone's been a believer. But there have been many difficult things that people have gone through over the past few years. And I've seen a lot of things that I've thought, you know, how do I address that? How should I address it? When do I address it? 
been a lot of trials people have gone through. And, but something we need to remember as we go through all these different trials is that trials sanctify us. They help us grow. We, we find that we learn from trials and we don't want to waste them. They bring patience. They bring wisdom, difficult times. And one of the ways that they do that, one of the ways we learn from trials is that they bring to the surface and show us areas where we need to grow in our faith. They show us areas where we might be weak in our walk with the Lord. Now, the dust is mostly settled, not completely from the past few years, but for the most part, things are calming down and kind of returning to what they were before everything went crazy. We're in a better place now than we were not long ago. Things were difficult for a long time, and it's been very challenging for you. It's been challenging for me. It's been challenging for our team here at the church, working through all those things and you know all the regulations and different things we've been dealing with. And I think it's time to, to touch on these things and teach on them on how to handle things like COVID and vaccines and all these different things that often cause so much division among people that they don't really need to do that. And everything that comes along with that, because the reality is, is that the dust may be calming, settling down on this, but there's, there's something else coming over the horizon that we don't know about yet. There's another problem coming. There's another social issue coming, and it's just going to be like that. So we need to learn how to work through those things. And for me, my thoughts, COVID has been one of the best things that's happened to Christianity in a very long time. I've talked about this before, but across the board, what I've read, what I've seen is that engagement in churches has increased dramatically. Volunteer hours have gone way up. Giving has gone up. Attendance has dropped, but everything else has gotten better, which is really interesting. But it also, another thing it did, another positive was it shined a light on a lot of things that we need to work, work on as individuals, as a church. And the Lord sorted things out through that. And he worked out a lot of good things through the challenges that we faced. You know, we got online. We formed some good teams, strong teams that, you know, that we didn't have before. We're actually better off than we were before we started. And it kind of expedited all of that. But I think it's time to talk about some of this. Uh, we're going to read again in verses 1, 2, and 7. And this is where we're kind of hanging out today. It says, Now the Spirit clearly says, that in the last time some will depart from the faith and pay attention to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And then verse 7 says, but refuse profane and foolish myths. Instead, exercise in the ways of godliness. You can grab a drink of water. But instead of those things, exercise in the ways of godliness. So, a pastor should teach these things as his life serves as an example of them. And throughout everything we've been through over the past few years, some pastors have done that well, some pastors have done that not so well, and I know personally opinions of how I've handled those things would be wide and varied. However, only one really matters, and that's the Lord's opinion. But even in difficult times, Christians should be reasonable, sensible, settled, and peaceful people. Some have done well with that, 
some, well, not so much. And this isn't pointed. I don't want anyone to think that. This is just kind of a, a general consensus of what I've seen as we've gone through all of these things. Now, we're obviously supposed to live a moral and godly life. We know that. We know that. Now, why do you think it's important that we do that? That's one of those things that we should think about the why. Why does that matter? Why do you think Paul says things like, refuse profane and foolish myths? And as my life is supposed to serve as an object lesson for you, your life serves as an object lesson to the people around you of what Christianity is, of what God is like. It serves as an object lesson of God's will for your life. And that's something we need to think about, something we need to consider, reflect on. And that's not meant to add to an already stressful life, but it is something to recognize and remember and to strive for. And God accepts us through the gospel, not our own efforts. We know that. But he also gives us moral commands to follow. And he does that so that we will represent him well to our community, to the people around us. And in the Old Testament, you see that a lot. That was very, very clear in the Old Testament, maybe more so than in the New Testament, but the same principle is still there. Israel represented God to the nations around them, to the peoples around them. And that's why they were given clear instruction, clear moral instruction. They were given the law and told not to get caught up in the things the other nations did. They were set apart to be different, to be a different people, to represent God. And why does this matter so much? It's obvious that God doesn't want to be misrepresented. He doesn't want us to give people a picture that doesn't represent well who he is. And one of the struggles with that is you can do a hundred things right and nobody will say a word. Nobody will take notice, but you do one thing wrong and everybody picks up on it. Everybody picks up on it. And the actions of a few influence the views and opinions of many. And as believers, followers of Jesus, We've, we should think about that. The actions of few can influence the opinions of many. And so God wants us to represent him well. The way we live validates the gospel message. The things we do validate the gospel message. Justice, mercy, the alleviation of suffering. Those are all important things. And here's some examples of what I'm talking about. Remember we talked about this a little while back. Christine and I watched a... Uh, I think this may have actually been a National Geographic show about the 80s because that's kind of when we were teenagers and all of that stuff. And I remember Jim Baker, who was a TV evangelist and got in a bunch of trouble. He had to have like $2 million a day to make that machine work that he had going. But it found out, you know, he was a charlatan. He was just, you know, stealing money, got in all kinds of trouble, got caught in hotel rooms, when all kinds of things happened with him. And that happened back in the 80s, but that attitude often still spills over into culture today. People still view Christianity that way. I've had recent conversations with people that still see it that way. So obviously a church leader shouldn't be someone who loves money. And today, what seems to 
shape opinions, what seems to be currently shaping opinions, is it's less about money and more about morality, more about moral failure. And if you look in the next chapter, you move over one chapter into chapter five, Paul says to rebuke elders, church leaders, pastors, who are caught up in things they shouldn't be. He says to do that publicly, publicly. And that's because a pastor's life serves as a public example. Whether it's a good example or a bad one, it's a public example. And that's why he says to rebuke them publicly. Now, there's two reasons, really, that that should happen. One of them is doctrinal heresy. I mean, just outright doctrinal heresy. The other one is moral failure. And that seems to be one that's shaping a lot of opinions today. You know, and we're, when we talk about you know, rebuking elders, that doesn't mean opinions or debatable things or personal issues, but things that are clearly established. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of moral failure um, among church leaders. Lose the term loosely, I don't know. Um, publicly, publicly. You know, I used to be careful about saying names, and I thought, well, it says publicly. Maybe I should say names. Uh, this is something not to do. Um, Carl Lentz. Does anybody know who that is? Does that sound familiar? Carl Lentz. He's the guy who was the uh, uh, pastor for uh, the New York City campus of Hillsong. And come to find out, he was cheating on his wife with his nanny. Um, I, I'm not sure. That, you could chase that rabbit forever. But the fact was is that he was unfaithful to his wife. It's super, super high-profile guy, too. He was hanging out with Justin Bieber. Um, you know, Justin Bieber had supposedly come to the faith, accepted Jesus, and I heard him talk after that, and he was, you know, he was really disappointed. It kind of hurt the guy. I'm sure it did. Um, his pastor, Brian Houston, he got in some trouble. Um, supposedly he had, you know, he'd been drinking after one of his conferences, and he was, you know, in the went to some lady's hotel room, and he stayed in there for 40 minutes, but supposedly nothing happened. Well, I don't know. You know, it doesn't really matter if nothing happened or not. What are you doing in another woman's hotel room for 40 minutes? You shouldn't be there. Um, Robbie Zacharias, that was a huge disappointment. Man, he was a, a, a very, very um, just stalwart, modern day. I mean, just, just an amazing guy, so we thought. Um, just such good teaching. And it turns out that, you know, he's, he's got these different apartments he's maintaining for women around the world, and he's got all these accusations against him of sexual harassment, and he's got a masseuse that's not really his masseuse. And, you know, I don't want to misspeak, but there was a, just this disastrous web of problems after he died. And unfortunately, that caused a lot of damage for a lot of people. And, you know, don't do what they did. They're a public example. Um, because it misrepresents who God is. It misrepresents how we're supposed to live. And the actions of a few influence the opinions of a great many. And their moral failures, unfortunately, have probably done more or had more influence in a negative way than the rest of their ministry. 
And I've heard, sometimes I've heard people say in situations like that, that's the world attacking Christians. No, no, it's not. Sometimes we need to own up to things. When things are bad, we say, yep, that's, that's bad, that's wrong. That's why Paul says, rebuke that publicly. Own up to it. That's not right. That's not who we are. That's not how we live. And the fact is there are thousands of pastors in churches doing a great job. But like we said, you know, you can do 100 things right. Nobody says a word. You do one thing wrong, and everybody notices. And a moral failure for a church leader misrepresents God to his people. It misrepresents God to the community. Hence the public rebuke and saying, okay, this is not who we are. And I'm not saying I'm better. I'm not saying I'm better. I'm saying this is what the Bible says. Okay, I don't want to confuse the two. And it's very important that each of us represent God well because in our own community, in our own circle that we live, we have influence on people. And moral failure in each of our lives has the same kind of influence on the people around us, the people close to us. Matter of fact, the people close to us are very much affected by it um, because they're close to us. You know, maybe you're someone who's been through that. Maybe you've, you've dealt with some kind of moral failure in your own life, and you know how painful that is. You know what that's like, maybe abuse or infidelity, or whatever it might be. You know what I'm talking about. You know the kind of damage that does. Christians should be moral, reasonable, peaceful, and sensible people. We shouldn't cause problems. We should solve them. And that's, frankly, that's been a problem for the past few years. And it's, it's very unfortunate. And people have been under a lot of stress and have had a lot of anxiety, which is not an unreasonable thing. Okay, stress, worry, that's normal. That's not unreasonable. It's going to be part of life. But how we react to that can be unreasonable. One of the things that causes people anxiety and stress is not knowing what's going to happen. That's like the biggest cause of it is not knowing what's going to happen. You know, when you worry about something, when you think about something, it's because you don't know how it's going to turn out. And then often once you go through it, you find, well, what I imagined is, is far worse than reality. But not knowing the outcome is what causes that. And when a person is a situation like that, it's not uncommon for people to start grasping at things like profane and foolish myths, like Paul talks about. You know, along with the other 1,000 profane and foolish myths I've heard, you know, COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast and the Illuminati and the New World Order and the Great Reset and a million other things people have sent me. You know, friendships have been ended over that stuff, which is absolutely ridiculous. People have left churches over these things, over what boils down to basically just not getting their way. And that's stupid. And in regards to being anxious and not knowing what's going to happen, you know, we may not know what's going to happen tomorrow. We may not know what's, you know, going to happen next week. But we do know that the Bible teaches us that to have joy in trials because they're going to shape and grow us. And that ultimately our future is secure in Jesus. So we might, know what's gonna, we might not know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know what eternity is going to be if we know Jesus. And Micah 6.8, great verse, says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. You should jot that down, put it on your bathroom mirror. What does the Lord require of you, 
but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Now, knowing that, knowing that we're going to be in heaven with Jesus once this is all finished, knowing that trials are going to grow us, knowing what you know, God expects of us, it's not going to remedy everyone's stress and worry. It's not going to remedy everyone's anxiety. But leaning into that should be our reaction to those things. Doesn't mean they're necessarily going to go away. We're still going to have struggles with it, but that's what we should do is lean into those things. That's, that's exercising our faith. That's exercising ourselves in godliness. And that helps us have sensible and reasonable communication with other people. And when believers don't do that, when we don't settle ourselves in those basic truths and lean into those things, they, they start to lose their potency in our lives. When we get caught up and swept away in other things, those, those basic truths that we should stand on kind of, kind of get swept away. And other things begin to consume our thoughts and spin up in our minds. And you know, you can allow, you can decide not to allow things to control your mind. You can decide your brain. You can tell your brain what to do. When someone allows profane and foolish myths to overtake their thinking, they begin to depart from the faith. They pay attention to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. They start speaking lies and hypocrisy. They have their conscience seared with a hard iron. All of those things start to happen. And remember, we're talking about church people. We're not talking about the world. And when Paul talks about profane and foolish myths, he says, refuse them. He says, refuse them. Timothy, you refuse them. Make yourself an example as you teach other people to do the same. And when Paul uses the word refuse, it doesn't mean saying no to something you don't want. Often we refuse something because we don't want it. That's not the context he's using it. It means saying no to something you do want, but is not good for you. Like watching too much entertainment news, or being overly consumed by current events and what's happening in the world. Like searching profane and foolish myths on Google, things like that. Read your Bible. Pay attention to your friends, your family, your community, the things you can see. And the word profane comes from a word that means threshold. It's an old word, Old Testament. You could take it back to the Old Testament temple. Like the Old Testament temple, there were things that were disbarred from the crossing the threshold of the temple because they were profane. And a fable is something that is fabricated by the human mind that is in contrast with reality. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't allow profane and foolish things fabricated by the human mind to cross the threshold of your mind. Don't let those things in your head. And teach others to do the same to prevent the consequences of what will come along with all of that rubbish. Avoid those things. Now practice that. Exercise yourself in the ways of godliness. And then teach others to do the same thing. And... Over the past few years, I've seen a lot of not that. And I've seen many pastors and Christians caught up and even consumed by a lot of strange things, profane and foolish myths. And as we, we think on these things, you know, let's, let's don't think about what's wrong with other people. Let's think about ourselves. Let's look inwardly and reflect on this. Caught up in the doctrines of devils. That can be anything 
that distracts, draws someone away from, or, or blinds someone to biblical truth. Anything. That leads to speaking lies and hypocrisy, and, and leads to having the conscience seared by a hot iron. And when Paul says their conscience has been seared by a hot iron, that means they have convinced themselves to believe something that's not true. And there's been a lot of that going on in the world, among Christians as well. All the crazy stuff happening, the, the COVID, the vaccines, elections around the world, a lot of believers have been swept up in those things in both directions. Okay, We're not talking about sides, we're talking about an attitude. And instead of leaning into growth and trials and leaning into security in Christ and standing on Bible truth, they get swept away with other things. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require? To do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Lean into growth and trials and security in Jesus. Exercise yourself in godliness. So much time has been wasted dealing with silly things that we shouldn't even been dealing with over the past few years, trying to hold things together and, and talking people off the ledge and all kinds of things. Whatever happens in this world, my king is still on his throne, and his throne is far above all those things. And don't, don't let all that rubbish cross the threshold of your mind. Don't let it consume you. Don't let it sweep you away. You know, whatever side of those kinds of things you might be on. Basic Bible truth, that's where it's at. That's what we stand on. You know, and, and frankly, it may not seem near as exciting as some of those things that seem to be happening in the world and going, you know, people going crazy about. But it's where you and I, it's where we need to settle ourselves. That's where we need to stand and stay. And then we can communicate in reasonable and rational ways because we're not swept up in all the wild stuff. Spend more time in your Bible, spend more time in prayer, and less time on Google. That's going to solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. And again, I'm not pointing any fingers at all. And I'm not saying hide away from the world. I don't want anybody to take that wrong. I'm not saying don't have opinions. And I'm not saying, you know, don't be involved in things. Christians should be out in the world. We should be engaged in our community. And I really believe Christians should be in the public sphere and influencing that and bringing a reasonable, rational, peaceful influence to that. But to do that, we have to grow in tribulations, lean into our security in Jesus, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with our God. And then we can have a right influence in the lives of the people around us, exercise ourselves in godliness. You know, have your opinions, form opinions, your thoughts. Share them. Fulfill your civic duty. Do all of those things. We should do that as believers. But first, exercise yourself in godliness. First, feed yourself with his word. I had a good conversation with someone I hadn't seen in a long time the other night. And I was, I was kind of the, the, the person in their life when they were really struggling and had first come to the Lord. And we worked together for a while. And then they went on and did other things. And we saw him recently. And man, had this guy grown. It was amazing how he had grown in the Lord and just, you know, he's a strong leader of his family now, just doing wonderful. And when I knew him, that was not that guy. But now he's just, yeah, it's incredible to see that in his life. But you know what he told me? He says, the one thing that was a catalyst for me more than anything else was learning to feed myself, to read God's word for myself, to sit down, discipline myself, to read the Bible, 
and talk to God. That was the thing that really changed my life. Exercise yourself in godliness. You know, pull your head out of all the things, those things that are distracting us in the world, drawing believers away from exercising godliness. You know, drawing our attention away from where God has placed us. God has put us in a place. And often our, our mind is all over the world and in other places. And it, it, to be fair, you know, media is very distracting. Social media is distracting. Google's distracting. News is distracting. All those things keep our mind, you know, all over the place. And it's difficult. And the way, you know, algorithms work on the Internet when you search things, it shows you more of what you have searched for in the past. So it's not really giving you a full picture. It's just kind of putting you inside of an echo chamber. So it's good to step away from those things and just look at our community around us. Look at the people around you and value that. We need to get out of that headspace of, of you know, that massive picture of the entire world. Exercise wisdom and patience. Because that, that's a big problem. Looking at a picture that is way too big. I've got some homework for you this week. We're, we're, on, we're about to finish up. Take pragmatic steps to do justice and alleviate suffering. Kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Because those things are part of our communication as believers as we go to the world and share his message. And when we do things like that, we validate the message of the gospel. And this is something you can talk about over a cup of day if you like. Because, you know, social media rants and complaining and having a wedge, they don't count. They don't do anything. Think of something that you consider to be a cultural or social injustice or, you know, it's something close to you, something that, that, that you can see, touch, be part of, potentially be involved in. Think of something close, something specific. Think of an area where you see suffering that could be alleviated, something close, specific in your community, close to home, something realistic. And then define your problem well. Define what it is. Define what it is. Don't generalize. Get specific about it. What's something you see, an injustice, some suffering, something that you could do something about? You know, every, we're, we're all experts on what everyone else needs to do. This isn't about that. It's not what the government needs to do. It's, it's not about whinging about what's wrong. Not what someone else needs to do, but what you can do yourself in your own life. What can I do? What sensible, reasonable thing can you do about injustice and suffering? What action can you take? What's realistic, practical steps that you can take to set an injustice right? What realistic, practical steps can you take to alleviate someone's suffering? What does Jesus want you to do acting as his representative? and his witness in the lives of the people around you that you can actually contact, that you can actually see. What does he want you to do? I'm going to ask you to stand as we pray. And I'm going to pray for you, and for me as well, of course, and ask God that he'll show us those things in our own community, that we don't get swept away in that all the, all the, the wild and crazy but what can we do to live as believers, exercise ourselves in godliness, and have a godly influence in our circle of influence?